what does Chinese medicine have to offer? The fact that it provides another view. You have to see the world in a certain way in order to be able to practice the medicine because it's so different than Western medicine. It's an ecological medicine. It's the unity of humanity with heaven and earth and specifically nature. And the Chinese, they were the great natural scientists. They observed the flow of rivers and how plants grew and that's how they figure out what the herbs did. All medicine was like that. Welcome to Pacific Rim College Radio, a podcast sharing stories and wisdom from experts in the fields of holistic wellness and sustainable living. I am your host, Todd Howard, coming to you from Raven Hill Herb Farm, a permaculture design campus of Pacific Rim College in Victoria, British Columbia. As the show's guests demonstrate, by doing small acts to embrace more mindful living, we can positively impact our communities. Zeb Rosenberg has been a leader in the field of Chinese medicine for nearly 40 years. He is the former president of the Acupuncture Association of Colorado, where he helped to spearhead the drive to licensure of acupuncture in the state. And for more than two decades, he served as the chair of the Department of Herbal Medicine at Pacific College of Oriental Medicine in San Diego. In his clinical practice, Zeb combines many aspects of Chinese medicine, including dietetics, moxibustion, herbal medicine, qigong, and acupuncture. For nearly five decades, with surprisingly little downtime, including early years spent as a macrobiotic counselor and shiatsu practitioner, he has been dedicated to the health of his patients. Zev is also author of two books on Chinese medicine and is currently writing his third. In this episode, we explore the roots of his journey into Chinese medicine, including an early Pink Floyd song that begins by quoting the ancient Chinese text, the I Ching, and other influences that turn Zev into an astute student of Chinese classics and then into an invaluable teacher. We peek inside his thriving clinical practice and discuss his books in terms of their writing process and their impact. Zev has brought so much to the culture of Chinese medicine in the West and has inspired countless to continue to pursue the magic of what it has to offer to the world. This episode is a great journey through the ages of an ancient medical system that continues to prove its genius, depth, and contemporary applications. Please enjoy this episode of Pacific Rim College Radio with Zev Rosenberg. Zev, welcome to Pacific Rim College Radio. Thank you very much. I want to first acknowledge our friend and colleague Lonnie Jarrett. He suggested that I reach out to you, also Heiner Fruhoff, who, whose podcast I just published a few days ago, so yours will follow that. Oh, I'd love to hear that. Yeah, you can have a listen to it. Well, they're both very close friends of mine. We're brothers in arms, so to speak. I interviewed Lonnie. It's been several months since Lonnie's been on the show, but both those episodes are on there. And our other mutual friend is Sabina Wilms, and... She owes me an interview in the next few weeks, so we'll have that out soon, too. There's a new book out, which is really amazing. And thank you for joining me today. I'm going to start with a question that is actually something straight from your website. And you have written there, when the heart-mind is correct, the brush will be also. What do you mean by that? This is like... I mean, you know, I got put that up a long time ago, and that's actually a quote. But basically, that um, it's like 
something like Musashi Miyamoto, the famous uh, samurai had said, it's like one's intention or yi, one has to be focused and the heart mind are one in the same of the same character, shin. And that has to be together first before one administers medicine, whether it's the medicine of the needle or the moxa or the medicine of the herb or the medicine of the hands or the medicine of the words, right? That the tools begin with having a centered consciousness. So now I, I'm going to call you a legend in the field of Chinese medicine. I don't know if that's what you would consider yourself, but I do. So it's quite an honor to talk with you today. It's you... an honor to talk to you. Well, legend only in the fact that I've lasted this long. <laughs> it's almost 40 years now. So. Wow. And when you I focused... first started, I had no idea that it would be my. I knew I wanted to do it and devote my life to it. But in those days, there were so few practitioners in America that I didn't know it was going to be able to make me a living. So let's put it that way. Well, let's, let's look into that a bit further. How did this come, come along for you? Okay, when I was growing up, um, I mean, I've told the story before, but I'm sure not a lot of people have heard it. You know, I was part of the 60s. You know, I was in my early to mid-teens. And it was a time of a great cultural explosion. And, and uh, we were exposed to a lot of ideas from the East. That's when Alan Watts books came out and uh, you know, Suzuki, all these Eastern ideas came in. And I was listening to a song once, uh, I, at the same time by Pink Floyd, I had taken a book out of the public library called The I Ching, the Wilhelm Baines version. And started reading through it, and I was very intrigued with the philosophy. It really caught me, right? So I heard this song. I just bought the new first Pink Floyd record. This is like 1967. And there's a song on it, and it was like very beautiful. A movement is accomplished in six stages, and the seventh brings return. And it goes on from there. And the title of the song was Chapter 24. Chapter 24. So I had this hunch. I went to my I Ching, I opened up the chapter 24, and there were the words to the song. No way. <laughs> oh, this is really cool. Soon after that, um, I picked up a cookbook called Zen Macrobiotic Cooking by Michelle Abacera. And it had a lot of quotes from a lot of the different sources and this follow-up book, Cooking for Life. I used to carry it around high school. And we used to go to concert, my friends and I, to go see all the bands of the era, you know, at ridiculously low prices. We saw Who, The Who, Cream, Jimi Hendrix, Traffic, Led Zeppelin, all the primary English bands and some of the great blues people from America too. And we used to try out different restaurants in the village. So one time I tried at a macrobiotic restaurant and it was called The Paradox. The Paradox taken from the Yi Jing again. And I felt so good from the food. I think I was like 17 at the time. Then I went home to my mother and I said, hey, this is how I want to eat from now on. And to give my mother credit, she was very supportive. So there was only one organic natural food store at the time. I was living on Long Island in the suburbs of New York. And of course, later I went to NYU, which was in the, in the village also. Well, I used to take these shopping bags home of organic groceries home. And, started eating macrobiotically and started studying the philosophy of George Estawa, which was based on yin and yang. So as I studied more about yin and yang, I learned about tea, I learned about Chinese herbs, and I heard about acupuncture. George Estawa used to teach acupuncture in Paris in the 40s. 
a five element form of acupuncture. So I became more and more interested in it. And um, I left college for health reasons uh, when I was like 20 and moved to Colorado and got into the natural food business. But I was a failure at the natural food business, but I kept my interest up in Asian medicine and got, I took my first quickie course on acupuncture from someone in Boulder, Colorado at a macrobiotic center. I didn't of course start practicing, wasn't enough to do so. But then uh, I failed in the health food business. So I decided I would study alternative medicine, natural medicine. So there was a naturopathic school in Santa Fe, New Mexico. So in 1975, I was running a macrobiotic center there. I was doing shiatsu. I had studied with some shiatsu teachers, which use the same channels as acupuncture. So I had training in that. I was studying naturopathic medicine, Western herbs. And a macrobiotic teacher came to town named Naburo Morimoto, who had just put out a book called Healing Ourselves, which was the first macrobiotic book to have in-depth information on Chinese herbs and the Shanghan Lun. And he told me, he said, every macrobiotic teacher should study the Shanghan Lun, the herbal classic, and should learn yin and yang and learn pulse diagnosis. I said, okay, okay, I'm very interested in this. But there were no schools at the time close to me. There was one school in San Francisco, which was the uh, um, American uh, College of Chinese Medicine, ACTCM, which I think is still there. And they were basically an herb-oriented school. And then there was one in New England called the New England School of Acupuncture. And uh, that's where Ted Kapchuk was teaching at the time. And it was run by Bob Felt through the teachings of Dr. Tin Yao So, put out one of the first acupuncture course books, which I had already taken a, a quickie course based on that book. So finally, a school opened in Santa Fe, New Mexico, two to be exact. And uh, there's a I was rejected from the first one. There's a story behind that. <laughs> Basically because the, the teacher was, um, it was a Japanese school. And I, I was invited to sit in classes. It was in a martial arts dojo. It was called the Kodatama Institute. And the teacher, Masahiro Nakazono, was a direct student of Georgia Sao as well. So I was even more attracted to it. But he had asked a question of his class about an article they had picked up saying that this Japanese scientist had found four types of blood tissue. He said, this is a very interesting article, but what's wrong with his findings? And his students were really scared of him. We were all sitting on our knees in the same position on the floor. So I raised my hand and said, there should be five types of blood tissue because there's five elements and five sounds, I-E-L-O-U. And he's missing the E dimension, which is the transcendent dimension. He only sees four, there should be five. Well, I thought he was gonna be very pleased at my <laughs> answer, but he got so angry that he screamed at his students for making them lose face. And he stormed out of the school and didn't come back for a few weeks. Wow. <laughs> so then I got my rejection notice. <laughs> so I had to wait an extra year to go to acupuncture school when a teacher from, as it turns out, Vancouver, who was running a massage school, an acupuncture school up there, and Stuart Watts drove down to Santa Fe and he went to my old naturopathic school and started an acupuncture school there. Okay. And so that's where I got went to school. And then I got my license in New Mexico in 1982, 83. But um, 
my connections, family, et cetera, were in Denver, Colorado, but there was no licensing there. So I kept my license in my back pocket, went to Denver and Boulder. I had an office in Boulder one day a week. And within six months to a year, I had a hundred patients a week because there was no one doing it. Wow. And I started seeing everything you can imagine. Asthma, bronchitis, flus, colds, kids, old people, cancer patients. They were just flocking in. People were looking for another approach. And so I really had to keep studying, studying, studying everything I could get my hands on. The pickings were pretty, pretty slim. So it's like, you know, growing up in public, but it started tendency to scholarship, which has never stopped up to the present day. So that's how I started my practice. It was huge. And I worked with two midwives who were assistants. And those days there were no disposable needles. So they would sharpen the needles for me and, you know, sterilize them, autoclave them. And uh, I had one of the first herb store in Colorado and they would fill herb orders, you know, it was really an amazing thing. I worked a lot because they were midwives with pregnant women doing deliveries and uh, obstetrics and then postpartum work. So, and, and the beginnings of fertility work, the fertility problems weren't as bad 35, 40 years ago as they are now, but there was some interest in it then. So wow. It was quite yeah. an exciting thing. Boulder was also very influential for me. It's where I took my first nutrition course at the University of Colorado and had a very eccentric instructor who brought in kind of people with radical nutrition practices from all spectrums, including uh, an ultra marathon, an Ironman athlete actually, who ate a diet of raw meat primarily. And so- I think we actually remember something about that. <laughs> and he really, every class he'd bring in someone new with some seemingly crazy food philosophy, but it really helped to awaken me to all the different philosophies that there are. And then my very first acupuncture treatment was also in Boulder, and it was the, the only treatment I needed to realize that I wanted to study acupuncture. So, One of my first teachers actually was practicing Boulder at the time. He's actually now in, he moved a few years later to the Bay Area. He's in San Antonio. His name is Michael Brofman. There's something called the Pine Street Pharmacy and Foundation. And he's like the Chinese medicine expert in cancer treatment. Oh, really? in, he's actually he's two years younger than me, but he went to, after college, he studied Mandarin Chinese in college and then went to Taiwan and studied under various teachers there. And he had a clinic, but his teacher would not let him charge money. So he had to work as a parking lot attendant, but he saw patients for free and they would line up the block. So, um, we became very close and he inspired me and he gave me some study materials. So um, one time I went into his house because he worked out of his home like I do. And in those days, you know, he, he had a girlfriend who was also a macrobiotic teacher and they called it the Temple of the Infinite Dream was the name of their place. <laughs> and I noticed that there was broken glass and turned over bookshelves and it looked like someone broke into his house and vandalized it. And Michael's sitting on the floor in the middle of this huge mess, smiling. And uh, I said, Michael, what happened? Are you okay? Did someone break in? He's, he just, liver chi discharge. <laughs> he had opened up one of his patients' liver chi. <laughs> and he was okay with him trashing his house. <laughs> I, I, I never wanted to do that with, in my own practice, but I appreciated it at the time. 
And he'd also treat like horary points, open points. Like if a person needed an acupuncture point done at 2 a.m., he'd go to their house and treat them at 2 in the morning. Really? Yeah. I've always wondered if people actually did that. Now I know. I have only done it a couple of times. And of course, back in the days when I was helping with births and stuff, you had to do extra hour stuff. I, I stopped doing that years ago. I, I couldn't keep it up now. I'm in my 60s now. Another connection to Boulder. Do you know herbalist Paul Bergner? Yes. Okay. I do. He's been on the show too. So he's one of our, our visiting faculty members. I wonder if he was a, a, a student of Hannah Kroger. She had a store where she would pendulum people and sell them Western herbs right on the Pearl Street Mall there. <laughs> I don't recall. It was a big hangout for our, our first wave of alternative healers. We used to hang out there. Yeah. It must have been quite a time. Oh, yeah. It was great. You mentioned the Shang Han Loon. You were told it's a must read. And you have since studied it and some of the other classics of Chinese medicine extensively. Can you talk a bit about your passion for that and your, your learnings? I'm trying to think where to begin. I would say, you know, I was the chair of the Department of Herbal Medicine at Pacific College of Oriental Medicine here in San Diego for 22 years. In fact, that's basically what brought me to San Diego. I had a practice in Denver for about eight years. And then I remarried and we decided to move to California. Um, there were problems with the board back then. There was a huge scandal, so I couldn't take the exam. So we had to go back to New Mexico where I taught at Southwest Acupuncture College for a year. Then I finally came here, I got an offer to teach. Ted Kapchuk was teaching at the school. And because he was teaching at the school and he had one of the few books out, The Red That Has No Weaver, it, the school, exploded in popularity. So he was leaving, going back to Boston. So they asked him, who can, who can teach in your place? So he suggested me, because I was already very close with him. So that, that was one key for me moving here. The second was, uh, there was a woman who wanted to refer all of her macrobiotic students to me. And then I got a column in a local paper. So that's what brought me here to San Diego to teach. But over the years, teaching herbal medicine, I was using like the Bensky text, which is still great. I still think both the formulas and strategies and Mediterranean Medica are excellent. But the problem is, is that the idea of memorizing ingredients in the formula and then memorizing the formula with no historical context and without the idea of formula families, how formulas are related to each other, the students just couldn't get it. You know, they give you the data, but not the how or why of it. And there's actually very simple principles behind it. And those simple principles begin with the Shang Han Lun. So I agree with those Chinese teachers who say that you can't really understand Chinese herbal medicine without understanding Shang Han Lun because that's like the root of all the schools that came later in all the formulas. And then every great physician who had a school of thought in Chinese medicine, whether it's the spleen stomach school, Li Dong Yuan, the one being warm, disease school, the uh, fire spirit school, Hoshenpai, all those schools have their roots in the Shang Han Lun. And you can trace how they design their formulas back to the Shang Han Lun. Almost all the formula schools afterwards are cut and paste combinations of these original formulas put to new situations and in of course different times in Chinese history. So, 
I lobbied for five years to get it to be a required class at Pacific College. And I taught it as an elective, but I rarely got enough students to actually teach it. And when uh, Paradigm Press put out a translation by Craig Mitchell, who of course is now in Seattle with uh, Nigel Wiseman put out the first translation of Shang Han Lun, I had a textbook and I brought it to them and they required the class and it's still required there today. And I actually tried to put out a study guide to the Shang Han Lun through a, a school in the Northwest, which I won't name because they had, were publishing books at the time. And they told me, well, we're not gonna publish this because one of our teachers says, one of our Chinese teachers says that only farmers use these formulas, that this was written for farmers. So <laughs> I didn't publish the study guide through them. So that was my story of the Shang Han Lun. My first copy of the Elo Emperor's Classic of Internal Medicine was a translator named Ilza Veith, and she only translated pieces of it. And it was offered to me way, way back in the 70s, but it was inspiring enough. And you know, people talk about Orientalism, you know, fantasizing about the East, but you, in those days, we ran a lot on inspiration along with perspiration. You had to be really inspired to get so deeply into something. And it inspired me. And then Henry Liu put out his translation of the uh, Yellow Emperor's Internal Classic, the Neijing and the Nanjing back in like 82, actually 81. And I got a copy of that. His English was terrible. The translation was very difficult, but still it gave me enough again to inspire me. And only in 2011, 30 years later, did we get a really excellent translation of the, of the Suen by Paul Unschuld. But I already was sold in the idea that Chinese medicine, going back to the very first question you had, is a way of thinking, of uniting heart and mind and training the mind. This is what a, Elizabeth Rochat teaches. What is a Jing? What is a classic? It's a warp, it's a web that contains groups of teachings that train the mind to see the world in a certain way. Because you have to see the world in a certain way in order to be able to practice the medicine because it's so different than Western medicine. It's an ecological medicine. It's the unity of humanity with heaven and earth and, and specifically nature. And the Chinese, they were the great natural scientists. They observed the flow of rivers and how plants grew and that's how they figure out what the herbs did and their seasonality and how the human body also has seasons and harmonizing these seasons in the body with the seasons in nature and the climate and environment you were in. All medicine was like that. Hippocrates has a book and he's like the founder of Western medicine called Airs, Waters and Places. And it explains how people living in a land which faces the sea with a prevailing wind from this direction with a mountain range here with this type of soil will tend to produce this body type that is strong in this way, weak in this way, and they'll be tending to these kinds of diseases. And these are the types of medicines you have to give them, right? That natural logic that's been forgotten in, a, in the technological era. And when people ask me, you know, what does Chinese medicine have to offer? It isn't to be me too. Hey, we're just like Western medicine. Oh, we can complement it. Yes, we can. But the fact that it provides another view. When I see patients, they want another perspective. They just don't want to hear, oh yeah, we treat lupus erythematosus. 
oh yeah, we could treat bronchitis. They wanna hear a perspective why they got sick, how Chinese medicine views their symptoms and then treat that, you know? What have been some of the greatest lessons that you've learned from the classics, the Neijing, the Nanjing, and the Shang Han Lun? There was an, in Ayurveda also has its medical classics, one's called the Karaka Samhita. And in it, it says that the physician is like a diver and that the classics are like a vast sea. So the physician dives under and finds a pearl. And out of that pearl, he can practice medicine. So in other words, when you study the classics, you can even just open them up at random. You'll find something, a line, a paragraph, an idea that can inspire your class, your, your practice for months, if not years. And that's happened to me. When I faced a clinical problem, it's like I'll find something in a classical text. It's like, wow, this is how I should be looking at this. And this is how I should be treating it. And it works. And it inspires me to go further with it. And also you need inspiration. That's one reason I've been able to practice for so long because it's so, I'm still so inspired every time I open up one of these books. You know? Otherwise so you, you get burnt out. You get something new from them every time you open them up. Oh yeah, it's, it's lifetimes of study, not just one lifetime. It's incredible depth and the commentaries as well. You know? yeah. It's updated every generation. I think one of the, we have a couple of barriers to their study. The first, of course, is classical Chinese language. Um, you don't need to master it, but it's good to know some basic Chinese. Number two, the worldview is so different than the modern Western worldview. You have to be willing to immerse yourself in that worldview. And um, number three, this idea that, you know, in modern medicine, everything's about the newest thing. Like medical schools used to have medical history classes. You don't see them anymore. I even found a textbook at the University of Colorado near my office in Denver that was for seasonal environmental medicine based on climate changes and so forth and seasonal changes. That class of course had been canceled 15, 20 years previous. That's why the book was in the library now. Hmm. But, um, Everything, it's always the newest technology, the newest thing, the newest discovery, and what went before no longer applies. It's obsolete. So people come and study Chinese medicine. It's like, why should we study something that happened 2,000 years ago, way, way back then, right? So you have to deal with that particular bias. What, what are they doing that's new? You see what I'm saying? It's... Yeah. But the idea, what I, my answer to that is that principle is universal. You know, that when you have principles such as yin and yang, five phase and channel theory, they're still here 2000 years later because they work, number one. Number two, they're based on a different worldview than modern medicine. So, and that worldview is what's worth discovering and studying and practicing. Yeah. People think it's about needles and herbs. You know, you can do like a westernized acupuncture, for example, like you could do scalp acupuncture, which is based on neuroanatomy. Now, I don't have a problem with that, but it's not channel-based acupuncture. Yeah. It's a westernized system. And I love too that they're not just text on 
how to treat, how to do acupuncture, how to dispense herbs. But as both Lonnie Jarrett and, and Heiner discuss uh, in their teachings and in their writings, it is lessons for life for all of us in those books. And as you said, as a practitioner, you're like a diver trying to go down and find the pearl. And the books are just filled with pearls on how to live a better version of ourselves in this world. And with that, what, if any, pearls that you discovered over your years have really impacted you as a person and as a practitioner? I'll give you one very practical, simple one. Although this year I haven't seen, it's a very weird thing about this COVID epidemic. Usually I have a lot of patients with colds and flus and a lot of kids. No one's getting colds or flus this year down here. I don't know about up there. It's like the COVID's like eating up all the bandwidth for external invasions. But usually I would find, you know, the weather in Southern California is very subtle, but we do get weather. We, when the wind blows off the desert, the weather is very different than when it blows off the ocean. And there are seasonal subtleties. There's a, you know, a wet season, although it's getting drier and drier, or a wet season, a dry season, a humid season in late summer, and a fire season in the fall when everything burns. And before weather fronts come through, I mean, if you think about a weather front, I think it helps having some knowledge of meteorology. I always like to look at weather maps and charts since I was a kid. You imagine this huge wall of air coming towards you, you know, and it has a different pressure, a different humidity, and a different wind direction and speed than what you're sitting in right now. Your body, what we call Taiyang in the Shanghamun, your surface layer is a permeable membrane that serves to equalize your internal environment with the exterior environment, which is your greater self in nature. So when that shifts, you'll often get symptoms. That's why people who are rheumatic or arthritic, their aches and pains get worse. Some people get headaches, some people get chills, or some people start getting like allergic reactions like runny noses. So you can usually predict when a wave of cold and flus is going to occur. In my own body, I can tell when the weather's changing because the same thing happens. So that's one pearl I learned from the Shang Hamun was how to determine that. The second pearl was the importance of time of day in terms of treatment and season and harmonizing my treatments with that, right? And also in terms of the herbs, using more warming herbs in the winter, maybe more cooling herbs in the summer, adjusting diet with that, just working with the seasonal chi, I think is very important because it's something modern humans have forgotten largely, unless you live in very dramatic environments like where you live. I mean, it's actually pretty dramatic here as well, maybe a little more subtle. But, you know, you're in the great rainforest of the Pacific Northwest. And, if you don't adapt to the climate there, you don't survive. <laughs> or you can wait 10 minutes and it will change. True. It's, it's also hard in the body, though. <laughs> yeah, it can be. So those are just a couple. I mean, I can go on and on about that. But, um... In your clinical practice, you define kind of your style as full-strength Chinese medicine. What do you mean by that? 
when I came up with that term at the time, I mean, there's a larger percent of the profession I feel who are studying and practicing full strength Chinese medicine. Now we have a lot more material translated. We have much more able teachers out there, you know, teaching things like specialties like dermatology and so forth, like Mazin al-Kafaji. Um, that too much of it was like what Arna Versus called spa acupuncture just basically to relax and feel good. And maybe you'll have a massage, maybe you'll have some acupuncture or, you know, re relegating acupuncture to just sports medicine, which by the way, I think is an important specialty. And I honor people who do that, but there's too many people think that all acupuncture should just be for pain or treating musculoskeletal complaints, right? Full strength Chinese medicine means you could treat seriously ill people when necessary. You treat all kinds of conditions and you're able to help them and heal them. Now I have patients with kidney failure, with you know all kinds of serious conditions and uh, they respond very well to this medicine. I mean, of course you don't, you're not so arrogant as to think, well, you know, a person will never need Western medicine. It's always a case by case basis. But sometimes the Western medicine doesn't do the job or the the patient or the, the doctor gives up on Western medicine and then you get to treat them. But we can do real, we do real medicine and you need real herbs to do it with real potency and you need a focus and you need skill and expertise. So that's what I mean by that. And as you said, you can treat so much more, a, a much broader spectrum, especially recalcitrant conditions that Western medicine perhaps hasn't had much luck with. Can you talk any about some of your incredible, miraculous, mind-blowing results? The funny thing is like, I have a book editor because I'm working on a third book now. And what I tell her is that I'm like a fish in the sea who cannot see because of the fact that you're constantly in it. I've been working so long I've never taken more than a week off a year in these 40 years. Wow. Sometimes pulling a patient out of that sea becomes difficult to use it as an example. One example that comes to mind, but this is more of a maintenance case, was almost 30 years ago, this woman who was now our accountant, she was born like with one kidney and born with a lot of organic deformities. Like they had to reconstruct like a, food tube to go to her stomach and um, she had absorption intestinal gastric difficulties. And she ended up at a certain point in her life where they wanted to put her on, uh, her kidney was not functioning strongly enough. They wanted to put her on dialysis. So she tried it for about a week and then just basically ripped the, the dialysis uh, tubes out of her arms and said, I'd rather die than do this. And around that time she found me. So I started working with her and like, and they gave her six months to live if she didn't do dialysis. And 30 years later, she's still thriving with once a week acupuncture and herbal medicine. I call it herbal dialysis. I mean, excuse me, acupuncture dialysis. It just helps the systems continue to function. And she's had times where she's been on the verge of like, you know, liver failure, kidney failure, lung failure. And of course, we don't have hospitals in the West like they do in China. Of course, I would encourage her to get checked, make sure her levels were okay. But um, she's had minor setbacks, but she's still relying on Chinese medicine for her health. 
That's one case. Yeah. Another case was a, a lupus patient who's a fellow practitioner who they wanted to do a kidney transplant on because, you know, at a certain point it progresses over several years, it goes to the kidneys. And we were able to delay the kidney transplant for 12 years hmm. until her 60s. So there's all kinds of cases like that. And with that, you're using, as you say, full strength. So you're using many different components of Chinese medicine, not just acupuncture and herbs, but dietetic. Yeah. Try to get people doing yoga or Qigong or other things as well, of course. Okay. And of course, living the lifestyle. Chinese medicine is a lifestyle, as you know. Sabino often teaches. Yeah. So you're sitting, I presume, in your clinic. And yeah, I, the well, I have the longest commute in San Diego. It's like a, about a 50 feet. <laughs> One wing of my house is living quarters. Another wing is uh, is my clinic. Yeah. yeah. And how's that set up? Do you see multiple patients simultaneously? I was or... seeing two people an hour until the COVID thing happens. Now I just see one person an hour. Okay. So that we don't have too many people exposed to each other. Mm-hmm. So. And I'm basically now relying on a screening process, which means mostly treating people I've known for a very long time, occasionally taking a new patient. I'm not doing as much emergency medicine as I was in the past. Basically, I would say the acupuncture part, everyone is so, whether they know it or not, traumatized by what's going on, both in terms of the pandemic and politics and changes in the world that Basically what I'm doing is reconfiguring their channels to create yin-yang equilibrium in their systems, which improves their immunity, improves calming their shen, helps their sleep, helps their general vitality. And within that treating conditions that come up. So it's changed my focus somewhat. Yeah, that's fascinating to me because literally probably two hours ago, I was thinking of doing maybe a series of podcasts on that very thing about adapting to the world today and how these natural health therapies can help people to do that, to deal with the stress and the fear and all the emotional onslaught that we're, we're being bombarded with right now. Yeah, we've lost a lot of people we know in the last year, some just because it was their time to go, some because of COVID, some because of cancer. No, it's been a rough year all around. And uh, I have a close friend who helped start a synagogue here who's in an ICU right now, you know, from COVID exposure. It's not been an easy time. And of course we can't treat active COVID patients. You know, you'd have to have a hospital setting and a hazmat suit and sterilization and so forth. We have, I do have a good number of post COVID patients and I've done a lot of Zoom consults, which was something new for me with patients all over the globe with COVID or other conditions as a result of this. So I've started doing more online medicine. Which, um, so yeah, there's been a definite shift, but I have to stop working for about a month since I work on my home. I had to get like the right, you know, UV sterilizers, you know, just get procedures up to make it safe to, yeah. to continue working and, um, so I was able to do that as we learned more about it, we knew what to do and what not to do. So there was a lot of adjustment. And also I did a lot of study on, the, the Chinese have a 2000 year history of epidemics. Now this epidemic course is very unique in terms of that, I call it the trickster and how it's very selective. 
you know, smallpox basically wiped out 80 to 90% of everybody it touched. But this disease kills a much smaller percentage of people. And some people are asymptomatic, some get mild cases, some get very sick, some die. And it's like a roll of the dice in many ways. So just before this pandemic hit the States, my wife and I took a, our first trip to Hawaii and uh, to Kauai specifically. Neither of us had ever been there. And after I stepped off the plane, I had an interesting experience. I had talked with Heiner Fruhauf about this. And I said, well, you know, I said, the sky is blue and clear, but there's something wrong with the air. The water is gorgeous, but there's something wrong with the water. And there's something wrong with the earth. They've changed. Something energetically had changed. I know it sounds weird to some people, but Basically, just before that happened, there were major fires in Australia, which is not that far from, in terms of prevailing winds from Hawaii, and a billion animals were killed. A billion animals, think about that. And changes to wind patterns and all that carbon going up into the atmosphere. We had huge fires here in California, which we've been getting every year now in the fall. And there were fires in the Amazon and fires in the Arctic it kind of threw something off of the atmosphere. And um, it, it affected the balance of heaven and earth. And it created what we could say is a shoe of vacuity, a space between heaven and earth where evil chi could proliferate, what we call yi chi or pestilential chi. It opened up space for a pandemic to happen. Plus of course the climate change shifts as well, right? So it created the stage for a new pandemic to happen. At least that's my perspective of it and understanding from my studies in the classics and reading up on past epidemics that hit China and uh, neighboring countries. So um, I was already aware that something was about to happen by observing that with my senses. Remember that native peoples were much more sensitive to changes in nature and they could feel it about 25 years ago, I read an article in the Albuquerque Journal. They had some cases of bubonic plague that year. And they interviewed, only in New Mexico would you find this, uh, two Navajo medicine men. And what they said is, the reason for this uh, bubonic plague coming back is, number one, there's a hole in the sky where evil influences are coming down. This is during the period of the ozone holes, right? And there was one right over Arizona, New Mexico at the time. Number two, the climate has changed and we had heavy rains in the spring, which created a lot of grass and food for the three, the rodents. Number three, the rodents, we, the uh, white man killed off all the predators, all the wolves and the foxes that normally would keep them in check and that allowed them to spread the disease. Number four, our young people no longer eat from mother nature. Um, in the Navajo reservation, I was actually just reading a diary because they were hit very hard by COVID of this one Navajo poet who said that every day um, we would go to the general store and get Pringles and candy and that was our lunch. And for dinner, our family, we would go to like Burger King every day. We forget sometimes how poor the diets are of native peoples. 
and which makes them more susceptible. And we see that in the infection and death rates that are going on. That's one of the factors. So this, I, it was interesting to note this even 25 years ago that this was going on. So, and Tibetan medicine talks about the, the spirits in nature being disturbed, you know, spirits of plant kingdoms, animal kingdoms, when we cut down forests and trees and disturb the animals that live there, because everything, we have a world of form, but we also have the world of the chi or the life force behind those forms. And those have been disturbed. And that stirs up new pathogens as the earth tries to self-correct itself, right? So I've done a lot of thinking about that. I know it sounds very wild and very far out, but uh, that's, that's how I explain it. Anyway. Yeah. In your quest to help patients reestablish their equilibrium during these challenging times, have you developed any particular protocols, let's say, that might be interest, of interest to any practitioners who are listening? There is a book that uh, uh, Heiner Fruhoff, one of his teachers, he was also a, a, a colleague of uh, Arne Versalus in uh, China. His name is Leo Li Hong. I'm sure you've heard of his books. He's, he has a book out called Classical Chinese Medicine, which I had a Chinese copy for several years. But now there's an English copy. It's highly recommended. But he put out a book by his acupuncture teacher. It's called The Yellow Emperor's... Uh, I have, don't remember the full title. I can find it later for you. Um, it's sitting in a prominent place in my bookshelf. Not so much for the technique and which point to use. I mean, I've been practicing so long. I don't need to study techniques anymore, although I'm interested in other people's techniques, but not, I have my own thing that I do. So, but the theory of getting back to what he called Zhang Hong, you know, the center, the righteous center, and getting your patients there. And when you get your patients there, spontaneous healing happens and the body's Zheng Qi, correct Qi, defense Qi, Wei Qi is aroused. So basically that's what I'm trying to do. I base it on the use of um, distal points on specific channels using the same six channel progression of the uh, Shanghanlun, of course, in a different context. The Shanghanlun uses it in terms of herbal medicine. So the descriptions of the channels are a little different than say the Neijing. So um, I use those channels, like I'll combine, for example, distal points on Yang Ming with Xiao Yang. Like for example, large intestine five, stomach 41 with triple burner five, gallbladder 41. Then I'll palpate the abdomen, look for tender points and choose maybe some abdominal points and maybe a couple of points. Sometimes I'll also use the wuxia shui of, which Lani uses of the, uh, the non-jing of the five transporting points, the five element, five phase points on the channels. I'll use that way. Well, that'll depend on what the pulse is telling me. So, um, and then I choose the points accordingly. And it's really is, you know, I was, I was, uh, I'm still a musician, not professionally, but, you know, I grew up, as we mentioned, on Pink Floyd and also Miles Davis and some yeah. of the great musicians of the time. And it really, there is a resonance. There's a term in Chinese, ying resonance. I'm sure Heiner spoken with you on, on his interview about it, where everything vibrates harmoniously and the patient feels it, you feel it, 
And that's when something happens to put the person back in a state of virtual balance and the body remembers that state. And that strengthens their immunity and their overall health tremendously when that happens. It's very simple. You're not even treating a condition or a disease anymore. Mm -hmm. Don't get me wrong. There is a place for treating specific conditions like, for example, amenorrhea, if there's a lack of a menstrual period or fertility problems or Jing issues, or of course we can treat headaches. We can treat all those things. I'm not discounting that and I'm not saying I don't do that, but there's a whole other layer beneath, beneath that of getting people balanced and harmonized and then allow the body self-healing processes to work. There's a very fine line between where you are working with a person's self-healing capacity and when you actually have to break down the door and give them the full strength medicine to treat a condition. That's the fine line. And of course, that's part of a practitioner's clinical judgment when to do one or the other. Yep. But the first thing these days, at least I trust is to work on that level first. Earlier in the interview, you mentioned book number three that you're working on. Can you talk a bit about the two books that you have published and this third one that you're working on? Have you seen the first book, right? The, uh, I haven't Returning read it. No, I haven't read it, but I do. I have seen it. Yeah. Yeah, that's uh, my first book was basically an argument to change the present educational system of what's, what's called TCM. Of course, TCM is also a very broad term. There's like what you could call Cliff Notes TCM, and then there's like much more in-depth TCM. And it was trying to address the fact that Practitioners didn't have role models, which were the great physicians, you know, Huang uh, yeah. Di, Li Dongyuan, the great physicians of the, of historical times, Sun Simiao, and also modern practitioners as well, who live by a high ideal, a lifestyle, a commitment, and almost a Confucian way of life, of ethics and self cultivation. That's the keywords here, self-cultivation, of making yourself a better person. Like medicine is a Tao to, to create a better human being. The practitioner is working on themselves as they work on other people, right? There's always this exchange that happens between people. It's, a, it's first of all, it's a mutual thing. I'm not doing this to you. We're working together to improve your health, but you're also exchanging chi with me and I'm getting chi back that also helps me. It creates a very healthy circle, right? So um, that's what that book's about. There's two key chapters in there that I can think of at the moment. Um, one is the technician and the scholar physician. It was basically a challenge to the profession. Do you wanna work as a technician sticking needles in people under doctors or chiropractors or sports medicine clinics to treat symptoms that someone else is diagnosed or that you're conforming to in your worldview about the patient. Oh, I'm having uh, shin splints. Okay, here's your protocol for shin splints and you do that. Or, uh, or the doctor says, uh, I need acupuncture for my lower back pain. And so you do some points on the lower back, that type of treatment. And then you're always speaking in terms of Western medicalese you're never reframing the patient. Why is your back sore in the first place? Is it from lifting heavy objects? Did you damage your kidney chi? Is it age related? 
um, your pulse tells me this, um, you're too cold and cold is lodged in your back. We need to use moxa to warm it up. We need to reframe people to really truly be practicing Chinese medicine. And then you're a, a, a scholar physician. I always use the term scholar physician because in order to really practice this medicine well, you need to study constantly. Like all the great, there was a great quote, I'm, I'm having to paraphrase it because I don't remember the form, but basically the, the physician in Chinese medicine is studying all the time. You treat patients during the day and then the evenings you're studying the classics. And that's the model I follow. And that's the model I think we, if we really wanna be a great medicine and we wanna really have a foothold in the modern world, in the Western world, that's what we have to do. Otherwise we'll be subsumed by Western medicine and then they'll train, you know, nurse practitioners, physical therapists, whatever, to stick needles in a hundred-hour course. What's to stop anybody? Right. So that was my challenge. You mentioned when you're treating patients, you're also treating yourself. There's an there's an exchange of chi. Do you do anything in preparation for a treatment or post treatment? Oh, every day I have to live a life. So look, I'm in my mid to late sixties now, and Every morning I pray, I'm Jewish, I put on tefillin and I do the Jewish prayers in Hebrew. I take a herbal bath with Dead Sea bath salts. I do yoga, I do qigong, and I do pranayama, breathing exercises. I eat a kanji every morning. So this is uh, what I do. Yeah, a lot. That's... Every morning. I prepare for it. If I, for some reason, I don't get to do it. I really feel it. So I take it very, very seriously. Mm -hmm. How long have you been doing Qigong? I am a very amateurish Qigong guy. There's a great teacher here in town, Ken Cohen. He's really famous. Yeah, I know He's, of him. We're very dear friends, but I learned one set of moves and I only do it for like 15 minutes a day, but I've been studying yoga. I mean, I got light on yoga by Iyengar when I was like 15 years old and started taking classes in New York City when I was in high school. And then I went back and forth to it, but I've been practicing pretty steady for decades. So my wife is a yoga teacher, so she gets to correct me every once in a while. <laughs> and what about book number two, Ripples and Flow? Is that correct? Ripples and the Flow. That's a non-Jing pulse. The most systematic pulse diagnostics I've seen in a easily accessed form is in chapters one through 23 or the first 23 difficulties of the Nanjing. Okay. It's systematic, it starts, why do we, you know, before the Nanjing, you read pulses and I still do sometimes because sometimes you get a person like who has a metal in their wrist and you can't really rely on the pulse or they have a split blood vessel. Then you have to feel the pulses at the neck at kidney three, uh, tai chi, at liver three, tai chong. There are other points where you could repulses on the channels, although not with the depth of the pulse here. The Nanjing explains why we use the sunko, the inch mouth opening on the wrist, and then explains how the positions are decided. And it compares what you're feeling with the circulation of Wei Qi, Defense Qi, and Ying Qi 13,500 times a day with the breath. So the Qi moves with the breath through the whole channel system. And it goes from the surface, which is associated with the lung and the skin, 
down to the kidneys at night while your sleep regenerates and comes out to the surface again during the day. So you're reading this flow. That's why the pulse should be different in the morning when you see a patient than the afternoon and the evening. And it may actually reflect when you choose to see your patient to get a different perspective, right? And Michael Brofman taught me in certain cases with myself, with my family members, feel pulses three times a day, morning, afternoon, night, and watch the changes there. And then by feeling every day three times a day, you also see how a chronic condition can change and evolve. So then it explains the depths, what you get at the different depths of the pulse, yang at the surface, yin at the depth, when yin overcomes yang, and then that's a sign of disease when yin is overwhelming yang, and when yang overcomes yin, and that's a sign of disease. It's a very logical progression in terms of the pulse. It also combines channel theory pulses with physiological upper burner, middle burner, lower burner. So that's what I explained in the book. The book didn't take off because it came out just as the pandemic was starting and I wasn't able to do any workshops up for it. Okay. So it's still sitting there and, you know, I will get back to it eventually. That's through Singing Dragon? Is that the publisher, correct? Yes, yes. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, well, if... The third book has been much more difficult. Part of it is the reasons the pandemic. My book, one of my book editors lives in Maryland and teaches at the school there, MUIH, which used to be the Worsley School. And he can't fly out here to sit with me because we usually ping pong, you yeah. know, ideas and he scribbles them down and we put them into a form. Haven't been able to do that. My other editor is in Berkeley and I haven't, I haven't left San Diego in a year. I haven't gone farther than our local hiking trails, you know. Wow. I do that several times a week, but that's all the only, out of the house, the only other place I go is to buy food, yeah. period. Or to, you know, hike. So it's been a year. On one hand, it's good in terms of, I guess, in terms of focus. On the other hand, there's been so much upheaval with this pandemic. And also my own thinking and ideas have evolved during this time. So I'm keeping changing things. And it's changed the book a bit as well. But the topic is ministerial fire, which is a central concept in Chinese medicine that's not taught in the schools very well. I remember when I was in school, they talk about kidney yin, kidney yang, kidney chi, or kidney yang and chi, or kidney yin and chi. And it would seem like very arbitrary. And it seems like they were avoiding the whole idea of minister and sovereign fire. Some of the reason was political. The idea of an emperor or a sovereign in your heart and a minister in your kidneys did not suit the social structure of modern China, right? Post-nationalist and communist mm -hmm. China. So I think that's one of the reasons, you know, there are a lot of things that are just left out of the education, which I think I reinstilled now. I don't want to, I can't really judge. I don't know exactly what's going on in Chinese institutions at this point, right? But I felt it was something that this fire, you know, the old myth about Prometheus giving the gift of fire to humanity in, in Greek mythology. And it's a gift that could be used or abused. On one hand, it allowed us to transform food in such a way to make it more digestible and assimilable. It also kept us warm blooded. On the other hand, it gave us technology. And the fire technology has been very creative and devastatingly destructive as well. Just a few minutes ago, we were talk, I was talking about how the fires that are taking over like in Australia, California, Arctic, and Amazon are changing the atmosphere. And 
you know, we're burning away the soil with chemicals. I mean, fire is out of control and the surface of the earth is heating up, but conversely inside the earth is getting cold and its ability to support life is lessening. We're actually burning up the ministerial fire of the earth itself in doing this. So people, there was a song by Jackson Brown, Running on Empty. You know, they're using up this fire, they're stimulating when you drink a lot of caffeine or, you know, cocaine or, you know, Lee Dong Yuong talked about this. You stimulate this through emotional excess. It's like you get all riled up and you run on that. But what you're doing is actually you're burning away your root and you're burning away your ministerial fire, right? So I feel this is very important perspective on medicine. So I've been working on this and work on it every single day, but it's going slower than my other books because it's not so straightforward. Yeah. It's really, I'm writing the tiger, so to speak, you know? Right. But it's coming along. It'll come out hopefully later this year. So. Yeah. Well, these are great contributions. As you said, we need to continue to study. If we're going to be practitioners, we need to always study. And you, the schools can only teach so much in in the length of programs that we have, like our, our longest program, our doctor programs, 4,000 hours. And we could oh, easily good. do, we could easily do 8,000 hours and still not cover all of these things. So it's so important to have people like you who are doing the translations, creating the materials and putting them out there, doing teachings and workshops so that people continue their learning. Well, I have to say, though, the Northwest schools, I've always have found to be more enlightened in terms of their material. But as I said earlier, I don't feel a lot of the mainstream schools are getting it across to the students. I mean, when we first started, my generation of practitioners, like I said, we wanted a lot of naivete and inspiration. And there wasn't as much depth on the practicality. But people were really stoked with the medicine. They didn't make it just another profession put on a lab coat and go to a doctor's office and be the lowest on the totem pole in terms of insurance payments. You know, it's really insulting how our practitioners are treated in the offices. I, I'm a member of a, of a few alumni groups of different schools. Well, they're no longer paying. They didn't even tell us they they cut our payment down like 40%. And now if we want to get paid, we have to use laser therapy and blah, blah. And we, we, you know, that kind of stuff, that nonsense. You know? So there's a lot of stuff that we have to be a little bit more, less meek about, less apologetic about, and be stronger about. And stronger about doesn't mean, you know, bashing down doors. It means this is a great medicine. You know, it's worth paying for it, a patient paying for it. It's, it's probably a lot less than the deductible you have already on your insurance. Here's our perspective, our point of view. And if it helps you, it's great. If it doesn't, there's other things you can try. Yeah. But stop apologizing for <laughs> It's enough already. Tell me a bit about the herbal line, the herbal line that you're creating, Alembic. Oh, my God. <laughs> Sorry if I touched on a sensitive topic. No, it's just that I developed that line 25 years ago. Yeah. And it hasn't been promoted by the company very well, and it needs to be updated. So it was a great idea at the time, but I haven't really pushed it or paid much attention to it because they only put out like, what, eight or 10 formulas? I think they're all great formulas, don't get me wrong. 
but a couple of them were discontinued without even informing me. Okay. And uh, so I'm looking for other ways to deal with that aspect of things, but I'm not attached to the outcome. Okay. So, I mean, like I said, it was a great idea that I wanted to get some really cool classical formulas out there for practitioners that they weren't learning in the schools. And I think I succeed in doing that, but it was always too limited, too small. And what I really needed to do was find somebody and start an herb company and go whole hog and do it. But just as an, I, I originally with this company wanted to be like, and I was a consultant and my name was there and I was gonna consult with practitioners and come up with formulas and it never panned out. And that's how I would see my best role is that as an herbal consultant for a company. Okay. What, if any advice would you give to up and coming practitioners? Okay, I know everyone's not like myself, but for me, when I went to acupuncture school, I did not like the textbook, so I didn't use it. There was a new book called the Shanghai Comprehensive Text, which was one of Dan Bensky's first translations. I used that instead of the outline of the outline of Chinese acupuncture from the mainland, which I found like really a Cliff Notes book. So I studied the other book because it, it had quotations from the classics throughout the book. And I had a great experience in clinic once, thanks to that book. I had, when I had my clinic in Denver, within a year I had hundred patients a week because there was no one else doing there. were the 30 practitioners in the whole state and several of them were part-time people. So I had people coming in from Kansas, from Texas, all over the place coming for me to treat them. And there's this one woman from, from Dallas who just had low back pain. And I did what were considered to be the standard treatments, the standard points. And I wasn't doing anything. I felt really bad, man, she's flying up to see me and I'm treating her. I gotta do some research on this. So I opened up the Bensky text and there's a quote from the Neijing, which is all the pain comes from the heart, right? I'm trying to remember which chapter in the Suwen this is from. I said, okay. So the next time she came, I treated the Shaoyim channel, heart and kidney. And after that, all the pain went away. And that was the end of that. Oh, wow. A couple of points. So don't rely on protocols, point protocols for things. Rely on the resonance with the individual patients. And for that, you have to have the classical study. Even if they're not teaching in your school, get yourself a copy of the Paul Unschuld Suwen. You know, if you have herbal courses, make sure you have the Shanghan Lun. Challenge your teachers to get this stuff. And don't think that Chinese medicine is designed around treating Western diseases. Like I, for many, many years, all the journal articles were name a condition. Um, oh, diabetes. postpartum depression. Okay. Mm -hmm. I said diabetes, but go for it. Okay. Diabetes is actually even a better one. Um, so, uh, what do you get in the journal article? I remember one, you get like two and a half pages of the Western condition, you know, the 
Isles of Langerhans, the pancreas, the blood sugar, how you measure it, what Western medicine gives you, either injectable uh, insulin or you take uh, in pill form, blah, blah, dietary change. And then you have a little paragraph. In TCM, there are four kinds of, of uh, diabetes. There's the, this Zongfu pattern, this Zongfu pattern, three or four, eeny, meeny, miny, mo. pick one or the other. And here's the formula for this one and the acupuncture points. Here's the formula for this one and the acupuncture points. And that's all they tell you. They don't reframe it. They don't tell you why does a person have this blood sugar problem? What are the symptoms? What are the basis for the patterns? What's the historical sources? Because Shaoka wasting thirst dispersion thirst goes back all the way to the Neijing. So without that perspective, basically you're doing, you know, you're not even treating patterns, you're treating a type of arbitrary typecasting of Western diseases frozen in time, choosing arbitrary points, which may or may not work. The worst was for arthritis. Oh, if they have arthritis of the knee, treat these points around the knee. You have arthritis for the elbow, treat these points around the elbow. No discussion of bijong impediment or what impediment needs that there's cold impediment, heat impediment, where that comes from seasonal aspects, completely ignored, right? So you're not gonna be a good practitioner if you don't have that perspective, right? So that's what I basically advise people to do is you may have to go, depending on the school, of course, and depending on the teachers. But in a school where I taught, there was an OM department, oriental medicine department, an acupuncture department, and an herbal medicine department. I was the chair of the herbal medicine department. But the OM department basically was all the Western diseases and then break it up into patterns. And there was like 80% Western medicine, 20% Chinese medicine. And I think that does a great disservice. I'm sorry to say to our profession, of course, learn about biomedical conditions and know the diagnostics and the medications that are used. You need to know that knowledge, of course, it's a no brainer. But maybe, I hope this isn't uh, stepping any toes at your school, but Not maybe you should get, you know, you know, go to a pre-med program at a community college and learn those things there and then focus just on Chinese medicine in your school, referring to Western medicine. If not, make sure you have enough Chinese medicine courses to really get the information because a lot of people come out with more knowing more about Western medicine. This was happening in certain in, in China as well, I understand. You'll know more about Western medicine than do about Chinese medicine. And you end up believing more in Western medicine than Chinese medicine. And this is why you see this exodus to what we call functional medicine today. Oh, it's, yeah, it's Western thinking. It's still dealing with the whole body, but I don't really understand herbs, so I'll give supplements. And of course, the supplements make more money and people understand the supplements, but you know what? Naturopaths are doing that. Chiropractors are doing that. And your local health food store attendant is doing that. Maybe <laughs> not to the same level of degree, but I don't sell supplements to patients. I may, I will review them. I know my supplements and I'll say, well, maybe you could tighten this up. Instead of taking 10 pills, take two or three. These are doubling up or these are not necessary. But I only give one herb formula. Sometimes I'll give a different herb formula at different times of the month. If it's like, for example, menstrual issues or even different times of day, different formula in the morning, different formula in the evening. But I'm not gonna give them like 20 formulas, 20 sets of pills and blah, 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 blah. 
to me, that's the, one of the problems with Western diagnostics. Everything is, there's an herb for the pancreas, there's a herb or something for the pancreas, there's something for the spleen, there's something for the liver, there's something for this, there's something for that. And you end up like with a pile. It's like the drug companies. You're taking like 20 pills by the time you're 65. And then they start having side effects, right? We want to avoid that. We want to treat the whole person as much of a cliche as that is, but we really want to do it. Well, it's excellent advice. It is a holistic medicine. And if it's supposed it, to be, it's supposed to be. And it's in its original form and philosophy, it is. And you nailed it in, in your interpretation of what is happening. And when we do westernize it, we lose not only what is lost in translation, and there's a lot lost in translation, but we lose all of the philosophy behind it. And as you say, we basically end up taking a pill for every ill and we just treat the symptoms rather than treating the whole person. Well, we're coming to a point now where Western civilization is at another crossroads like it was in the 60s. Back then we were worried about nuclear war, now the Cold War with Russia. And I kind of opened up the world of ideas and became open to the very cultures that we were unaware of right? Basically the East. Now we're going through another cultural crossroads because we're seeing that our technological civilization has many huge problems and that's creating a lot of destruction in the environment and a lot of death of human beings and a lot of violence and war and chaos is going on again. So people are starting to question things again and it provides an opening. But there was this in recent decades, this inferiority complex in our profession and there's a famous medical anthropologist by the name Nathan Sivan, who's now emeritus at the University of Pennsylvania. And he's translated some books. And he, his idea is that Chinese medicine is a science and that all cultures had science going all the way back. What was different was their criteria, what they based their science on. And that whenever we examine a culture, a methodology, medicine or anything else, we need to take it on the basis of the culture we're examining rather than superimpose Western values, or should we say Eurocentrism on those cultures and try to fit our understanding of what is qi, what is yin and yang, right? We need to immerse ourselves in that worldview and in those sciences if we have any hope at all of understanding what it is we're doing. Yeah, well said. Thank you. Hey, Zev, where can listeners find more out about you? I have a Facebook page under my name. Um, I'm also administrator of a group called Classical Chinese Medicine in Clinical Practice with Brant Stickley from the school in Portland. Brant's on the podcast too. He's oh, wonderful. Yeah. So, and I have a website, zevrosenberg.com. Okay. It needs updating though, I'm warning people, but there's a lot of articles and information there. So that you definitely find there. And I'm always here, people can email me. And stuff. Great. Okay. Well, if you can send me the links, I'll put them in the show notes. I just sincerely want to thank you for enlightening us today with your 40 plus years. It's a lot of fun for me. So. Oh, great. Well, glad to hear I it. it great. Thank you. And... Let's get you up to Victoria when the world of, of lockdown permits it. Love to have you here to do some workshops and teaching. Pleasure to meet you. Any kind of Heiner and 
Lonnie and Brandt is a friend to me. Let me and thank you for your time. It's great to meet you and uh, wishing much success to your school and your, and your studies and practice and everything else. Thank you. I'm going to go listen to chapter 24 from Pink Floyd now. Oh, let me know what you think. It's unbelievable. Imagine to a 15-year-old impressionable <laughs> Right. I, w- I was probably f- about 15 when I went to my first Pink Floyd concert. So, Oh, yeah? Okay, great. I've seen, I saw them in the very, very early days all the way to one of their last concerts in a stadium. But I like the earlier versions better. Yeah. In fact, their drummer, just before the pandemic occurred, was touring with a band playing those first Pink Floyd songs that were very psychedelic. Oh, really? Yeah. Nice. Well, I'm going to check it out. I'm, I probably have heard it, but I'm going to, I can't think of it right now. So I'll go take a listen. Are you Thank you, Zev. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to this episode of Pacific Rim College Radio with Zev Rosenberg. For more about Zev and his work, please visit his website, zevrosenberg.com. That's Z-E-V-R-O-S-E-N-B-E-R-G.com. You can find his books through the Singing Dragon links in the show notes of this episode. If you are interested in studying Chinese medicine, the School of Acupuncture and Chinese Medicine at Pacific Rim College offers world-renowned multi-year programs, including world's first study options combining acupuncture with Western herbal medicine and holistic nutrition. Visit PacificRimCollege.com to learn more. Also, don't forget to check out our online education in Chinese medicine by exploring the amazing course offerings at PacificRimCollege.online, including many courses featuring other guests of this podcast. If you are interested in receiving clinical services in holistic nutrition, herbal medicine, and acupuncture in Chinese medicine, the Student Clinic at Pacific Rim College provides more than 7,000 annual treatments. Live holistic nutrition and herbal medicine consultations are both available online, while acupuncture and Chinese medicine treatments can be had at our Victoria campus. Free treatment options are available in all areas. Visit the Student Clinic at PacificRimCollege.com for more information and to book your appointment. If you enjoyed this podcast, share it with your friends and family and give it a five-star rating on whatever podcast app you are using. Thanks for tuning in. Until next time, do what I did and get lost in the lyrics and unique sound of Chapter 24 by Pink Floyd.